Matthew chapter 12. What's the greatest source of untruths being spoken into you? Uh, probably someone online right now, someone here this morning, uh, you in your mind, you're older. You've never gotten away from something one of your parents said years ago. That thing still beats you up and makes you feel worthless. Uh, for some, this is happening frequently. It's something that your spouse says over and over, and it just beats you down. And it's a source of untruth, and the Lord says, no amount of untruth shall separate us. I'll confess to you, my main source of untruth that tries to creep in and whisper to me, this person goes with me everywhere I go. <laughs> everywhere I go, this person's there. They're not always saying untruths, but the main source of untruth in my life is this guy named Jeff Bartlett. He keeps trying to say things and make accusations against me, and though they have some truth to them, Romans chapter 8 says they're gone. They are not true, and there is no, therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. I don't know why you're getting three sermons today, but that's another one, so I like that part of that song. Don't let the source of untruth... Um, Try to separate you from God because the Lord says they cannot if you put your faith and trust in Christ. Uh, you're in Matthew chapter 12. I think this is our fifth sermon here, and so I, I can't. It's been two weeks uh, since I was gone last week, um, and I'm going to do a brief introduction, then we'll read. I think it's five verses this morning, 38 to 42. Just before I do that, uh, I want each of the staff members to come around and tell you how thankful they are for being. No, I'm not going to do that. Uh, we would not have time to do that. Uh, thank you guys. I will say this. Uh, I've been a part, I think, on a regular basis attending six different churches in my life. And not just because I'm here right now. Graceview is far and away my favorite church I've ever been in. And before we came, there was a spirit that was here that drew us. And my hope and desire is that that spirit has flourished and that we truly do live up to our name and that we have a view toward grace. I love the spirit of grace that is here. Um, we have five elders, four deacons, and the elders were able to get away about a month ago and spend about 48 hours together. And if you wanted to know our perspective of being able to minister here, uh, we would have to have a camera running and give Brandon about three weeks to splice together a tape, and it would have been about five hours long. Um, we laughed a lot in those 48 hours. We ate a lot, we cried a lot, and we prayed a lot. And uh, that was a very wonderful retreat. But on that retreat, it reminded me fresh and new the spirit of Graceview. Uh, you guys have a tremendous church, and you are part of a tremendous church. You are an important part of that. And so thank you. It is our privilege to get to minister with you, to you. And hopefully we have an attitude of serving up underneath you as an under-shepherd of the great shepherd. So praise the Lord for this opportunity. Matthew chapter 12. Um, I feel, a, I'm going to, wasn't planning on saying this. I feel a little bit unprepared, a little more than normal. I studied for this two weeks ago. And then I went on vacation. And at the end of the week, you know, you tried to get it back together. And it is hard to get all that is in your heart normally by just flowing right in through the week into a Sunday morning. And so I'm praying, and I ask you even now, Lord, uh, speak. Pray for yourself. It's not selfish. Lord, speak to me through this text. 
uh, whatever you have for me, let me not miss it. And then pray a prayer that the Lord would even use me to accurately reflect and speak what he wants us to hear from this text. So Matthew chapter 12. Here's the scene, all right? Jesus cast a demon out of a man who was also blind and mute. And when he cast the demon out of this man, he could now see and hear. The average person there was astounded. I mean, really blown away. They were amazed. They came to a conclusion. Could it be? This isn't the son, the son of David, is it? They were wondering, is this the prophesied Christ, the Messiah? But the Pharisees very quickly tried to dispel that by saying, no, no, no. He only cast out demons by the power of Beelzebul, the prince of the demons. In essence, his power comes from Satan. That's what they have to say about him. Christ then goes on and he says how foolish that would be because Satan would be divided against himself. And then he comes back and he says, actually, he has cast demons out in the power of the Holy Spirit. He doesn't just minister in his own power as God in the flesh, as God in the flesh, as a man. He sets an example for us by literally living his perfect life by relying on the power of the Holy Spirit that had come upon him, particularly there at his baptism. And so... Because of that, bringing in the power of the Holy Spirit as his source to cast out demons, Jesus then warns them, and what we had to admit when we came to 31 and 32, was he saying they had blasphemed the Holy Spirit and it was unforgivable, or are they dangerously close to blaspheming the Holy Spirit by accusing him of doing what he did in the power of Satan? Couldn't answer that, but we threw out a few options. Two weeks ago, we looked at this, verse 33. Jesus tells, I believe, mainly the Pharisees, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, but a tree will be known by its fruit. Tree and fruit, the fruit will tell you about the tree. Is the, is the fruit good? Then the tree is good. Is the fruit bad? Then the tree is bad. I believe that was Christ's way of saying, make up your mind about me. Am I good or am I bad? But whatever you conclude, the fruit of my life should match the conclusion that you come to. That makes it pretty simple to say he is very good. But they're still struggling with this. And then he goes on, he talks about the judgment and various things. Look at with, you, with me if you would, verse number 38. A little bit of a strange passage this morning. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, this is their only sentence in the text this morning, teacher, sounds respectful, we wish to see a sign from you. Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered them. They want to see a sign from God. They want to see a sign from Jesus. But he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. This is not Jesus' way of saying that these men he was talking to were literally living in physical adultery in their marriages. He's saying spiritually that they represented a nation that no longer was adulterous on God with foreign gods like they had foreign idols that God rebuked them and chastised them and defeated them and sent them into exile. No, Israel has been cured of its um, um, of its monotheistic ways. They are very much about one God now, but they've replaced those monotheistic ways with all their traditions and all of their works as a way of, of getting to heaven. And so that is not trusting the Lord. They have now still, rather than trusting the Lord, they've brought themselves in as the primary God. And so Jesus says, you want a sign? It's because you're an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. But here's his answer to them. 
No sign will be given to it. No sign will be given to it except, here's the exception, the sign of the prophet Jonah. For, so that'll be your sign. It'll be the sign of the, what is the sign of the prophet Jonah? For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be, here's your sign, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So just by reading that, most of you already realize what the sign is. We want to see a sign. You're not going to get a sign. You evil and adulterous generation, you're not going to get a sign. I'll tell you what, I'll give you one sign. It's the sign of the prophet Jonah. The son of man, that's a title Jesus uses for himself, will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth like he was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish. Verse 41 and 42, they go together, and it's almost as though Christ says, while we're talking about Jonah, let's bring this in. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation. 2,000 years ago, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. Guys, let me pause right there. I don't know that Jesus is saying, now watch, let's do a little timeline. So from the past up to the time of Christ, and then here we are somewhere in here, and we don't know how far this will go. So what you're going to have is back here is Jonah, 750 roughly years before Jesus. So Jesus is saying sometime in the future there's going to be a judgment. And the men of Nineveh, when the people in Christ's day, he's telling this group, when you're judged here, these people are going to actually be brought up and they're going to give a testimony. I don't know that he's saying the men of Nineveh are going to say, you awful rotten people, we condemn you to hell. I don't think that's what he's saying. But what they're going to say is going to add condemnation to this group that Jesus is talking to in this time frame. Look at 41 again. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. Why will what they say be so condemning? For they repented, the men of Nineveh, they repented at the preaching of Jonah. Notice how I said that. They repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, look, pay attention. Something greater than Jonah is here. They repented at the preaching of Jonah. Something greater than Jonah is here. Verse 42. Not only 750 years before them, let's go back a thousand, almost a thousand years before them. Verse 42, Jesus is going to bring up one other lady. The queen, while we're talking about the judgment of this generation, the queen of the south, the queen of Sheba in 1 Kings chapter 10, we're not going to read that, we'll just take it right here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation, here they're being judged, bring her forward, need her testimony. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. So she's also saying things that condemn it. Why? For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Look back again, verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign. 
from you. Notice with me three things this morning. Number one, Jesus denies the Pharisees' request. So I have a few, few things that I've struggled with in this text. I'm going to throw them at you. You see where you fall. I, I cannot be definitive on this, so I'm just going to throw them out to you. So on this thought, Jesus is going to deny the request of the Pharisees. So here, let's think about it. Here they come. They've been doing some thinking, and then, let me paraphrase. We've been talking, and here's what we've come up with. We've got an idea of something you need to do, okay? Now, the problem is, back in verse 14, these people have con conjured together. They have conspired together to destroy Jesus, to kill Jesus. So th he's, they're out to kill him. Furthermore, they say that he's actually being used as a tool of Satan. We're out to kill you. You're nothing but a tool of Satan. But here's what we got. We want you to do something for us. Will you perform a sign? Apparently, their idea is this. If you are who you say you are, then you need to prove it. So what I wondered as I read that over and over and over, I'm thinking, how are they asking this? What is the tone? What is their purpose? And guys, I came up with three different ideas. I don't know which one I'm going to throw them at you. And you, let's just talk about the possibilities briefly. The first two are very similar. Number one, do they ask this from a purely evil motive? Is their desire nothing more than this? We know that people are watching. Their goal is to put Jesus on the spot, ask him to do some miraculous sign. And when he doesn't do it, then everyone will know the reason you don't do it is because you can't. You don't give a great sign because you can't perform a great sign. See, people, you ought to go home. There's nothing to him. Is their motive purely evil to undermine him and to drive down people's faith? Or is it less that? Let me offer a second one. Is it not so that we don't care what they think? Is it very sarcastic? It's more about them and him. Is it this idea? Listen, we'll just tell you straight up. We don't believe in you. But if you are who you say you are, then you ought to be able to do something so big that even we cannot help but believe. Make it impossible for us not to believe. Go ahead. Do something that even we will have to believe in you. Go ahead. And Jesus says, no sign will be given to you, you evil and adulterous generation. So is it evil to show him up or is it just sarcastic? Or, let's just offer it, is there a chance this is sincere? To some level. And here's where I struggle. How many of the people that were in verse 14 are actually present here? Because there's been some movement. How many of the people that were in verse 24 that, called, that said he was used by Satan are actually the same crowd that's being used here? Probably several of them. But in this group, maybe some have an evil motive. Some have a sarcastic motive. But others perhaps have a legitimate motive. In other words, you can still convince us. So I thought about that one. If that is the case, then guys, does this mean that the warning in verse 31 and 32 about blaspheming the Holy Spirit, and if they haven't done it, they're dangerously close, did that get their attention? Like, whoa, 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 hold on. We just need a sign. Convince us. Or is it a sign that verse 33, you want us to make up our mind, are you good or bad? Then give us a sign. Maybe we can get on board with what you're saying. We just need a sign. Even if it is sincere... I'm still going to offer to you that it has a horrible flaw to their motive. You see, do you see the problem? Even if they're sincere, we just need a sign. It is completely arrogant on their part to come and say, we need a sign from you. If I, guys, if I could put it this way. Picture the Roman Colosseum and you have the emperor sitting up in the emperor's box and the people are performing below and down there's the gladiators and they're fighting each other, they're fighting some animal. But here, 
this gladiator has the knife at the other gladiator's throat. He's finally won, and he looks up at the emperor's box, and the emperor's given either thumbs down, go ahead and kill him, or thumbs up. He's impressed me enough. Let him live. Let him spare, spare his life. What they're saying is that you, Jesus, are down in the arena, and here we are up in the judge's box evaluating your life. They have set themselves up as the judges of the Son of God, and they're out of line for even asking such a request. Look at verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. If you're taking notes, write this down. What is the sign? What is a sign? A sign here means a miracle that would attest so strongly, a strong miracle that would attest that he really is the Messiah. So as you're writing, that's a very simple definition. Well, I think you all knew that. What is the sign? Something that would clarify so miraculous that we would know you really are the Messiah. As you're writing that, answer this in your head. What do you think they are asking for? Because the text doesn't say. What do they have in mind? Show us a sign. What kind of sign do you think they're asking for? Are they wanting something in the stars? Are they wanting water parted? Are they wanting food to fall out of the sky? Are they literally wanting a mountain that is here to be thrown into the sea? We want to see something like, if you'll do, I don't know what they're after. But here's what puzzles me. Here's the question. What type of sign are they asking for that he hasn't already done? Think with me. He's already calmed a storm. But you say, Jeff, hold on. That was at night, and that was only his disciples. True, okay, maybe they didn't get the word out, and even if they'd heard that, they would have denied that. They haven't heard that. But we do know this. The first miracle that Jesus performed would have been well-known and well-attested, and people that didn't even believe in him would have had to say, yes, this is true. He turns water, basic water, into wine at a wedding that the governor of the wedding feast says, this is the absolute best wine of the whole place. Why, have you let, why didn't you bring this out first? He's turned water into wine. Think with me. What are the signs that they're asking for? He literally, every person that has a disease or a malady or a sickness that has been brought to him, he's healed every one of them. Every person who has a, a demon, demonic force in them, he's cast out all demonic forces. This is a person by this time has already raised the dead. Notice the Pharisees not one time have said these things are fake, they're phony, they're not real. They acknowledge his power, but they deny that his power is from God. So I'm asking myself, what is the type of sign that they're asking for? I would almost have a lot of John in my message today. It's amazing because wherever I'm reading my scripture for that week, it seems to work itself in, and I'm going to fight against it. But I have to mention this. It just happens to be. So this week I'm reading John chapter 5, and in that text, Jesus gives five testimonies that attest that he is the Messiah. And they go basically in this order. He says, my own testimony, I tell you who I am. But guys, let's be honest. A person just saying that they are something does not make them that. You're probably thinking anyone could step up and say they're the Jewish Messiah. Anybody could claim to be the Jewish Christ. True. But real quickly, go in your mind real fast, fast you can. Name the people that you remember throughout history. I'm not saying who claimed to be Jesus they're a new version of Jesus. Name how many people you can think of in your mind who have claimed to be the Jewish Christ. Some of you are like, I can't think of even one person. Some of you are thinking of some guy in Texas. Some of you are thinking of some guy in some people in South America. I, those, are, those are not the same as this. 
Anybody could, but notice Jesus actually does claim to be the Messiah. Here's, here's, those who, here's the testimonies that attest. Number one, he says, myself. Number two, John the Baptist. Literally, John the Baptist. And everybody believe John the Baptist. He points and says, that is the Lamb of God. That is the Christ. Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He is the Son of God. John the Baptist points at him. Number three, Jesus says, my own works that I do. Here's what he means. The miracles that I'm already doing, the kinds of miracles I'm doing, they attest. Hey, if you don't believe me, then believe the works. Number four, God the Father gives his testimony. Number five, the scriptures. Now, here's important. In John, Jesus says, you Jews, you search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and you're right, but they speak about me. What is he saying? The prophecies of the Old Testament testify on top of Jesus, on top of John the Baptist, Jesus' miracles, God the Father, and the Old Testament prophecies. Again, if you're taking notes, write this down. I'm going to offer this. I can't get it to you, but I'm going to offer this to you, and I think it's a little bit important. Okay? It seems to me... That when they're asking for a sign, they are not asking for fulfilled prophecies. They're not asking, will you do some fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy? They're not necessarily asking for that. You say, Jeff, why? They already have plenty of those. So then what are they asking for? I'm going to contend that they're asking for something beyond the Scripture, something that the Old Testament has not specifically spelled out. They want something different, something not in the Scriptures. Do something bigger even. And Jesus says, you will not be given a sign. No. And then he says, actually, you will get one sign. In a moment, we'll cover that as our second thought. But before we do that, would you look just for a few moments at verse 39? Look at verse 39. He answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. No sign will be given to it. An evil and adulterous generation asks for a sign. In this room, some of you are like me. You've had a point in your life where you perhaps have asked God to do something unique and special just for you to give some clarification. Is that a sign that you're on the right path? Maybe someone here this morning, you're saying, I am right now currently in a situation where I'm asking God to give me a sign. Again, if you're taking notes, I want to propose the following. Asking God, I'm basing this off verse 39a. Asking God for special signs is not a good thing because it actually indicates unbelief rather than faith. God, I need a sign from you is an indication of unbelief. It is not a sign of faith. I'll about bet you, I can't back this up, but I would about bet you that today somewhere in America this will happen. There's going to be someone in America driving very quickly on the way to the hospital or someone who is sitting in a hospital room in the nighttime in the dark when everyone's gone and they're crying or someone's in the chapel of a hospital and their heart is heavy because the person that they love the most in this world is about to die. They've not had anything to do with God, but on this occasion, because their loved one is dying, they're saying something about like this. God, if you are out there... If you will hear me and if you will save my wife or my husband or my son or my daughter or my mother or my father or my best friend, if you will keep them alive, then I'll believe that you exist and then I'll know that you exist and then I'll even, I'll start searching you and then I'll start living for you if you'll do this for me. Others, it's as simple as this. God, if you'll save my marriage, then I'll believe in you. For some, it's as simple as asking the Lord, 
if you will get me out of trouble. You know who I'm thinking of here? Jacob in the Old Testament. This is happening across America. God, if you'll get me out of this trouble, then I'm in. I'm in so much trouble. I've really blown it. But if you'll get me out of this, then I will believe in you. I need you to show me a sign. Help me. Not in your notes, but I wrote this later, and I kind of wish it had been in the notes. So I want to offer it to you. Asking God for a miracle. Hang with me. Asking God for a miracle is not necessarily the same thing as asking God for a sign. Does that make sense? So as asking for, God, I'm on a miracle from you. God, I want you to show your power, and then there's asking for a sign. What's the difference? One, a person could ask God for a miracle, watch, because they are convinced of his power, whereas a person over here is asking for a sign because they are still yet undecided if he even exists. I need a sign to know if you exist. This person over here, God, I'm asking you to move because I know you have the power and I'm asking you to do it. I studied this several times and I thought, Jeff, what is the right way to view this because I want to be right in how I go through life. I don't want to just be evil and adulterous myself asking God to do things that I shouldn't and yet I know what the Bible says in other places and so I kind of fought through that and here's what I've concluded. It is a good thing to ask God to display his power as an answer to our prayer request. Guys, that is a good thing. Several months ago, we were back in the Sermon on the Mountain. We think we were in Acts chapter 6 and 7, or Matthew chapter 6 and 7. We were working through that, and I remember we had a whole message. The main thought, the main takeaway was this. God is more willing to do for us and to answer our prayers and to give us things than we are to ask. I remember teaching that. Jesus says, ask and seek and knock. In other words, this, our Father, which we just sang about, He has all this power and He wants to do all these things for us. So guys, it is a good thing to ask God to display His power. So Jeff, then, then what's the problem in the text? Here's the wrong thing. It is wrong to make our requests as though our faith in God is riding on His response. To make a request as though our faith in God is depending on how He answers or doesn't answer our prayer request. Hey, I'll tell you one of my problems. I'll tell you one of Grace Few's problems. We don't pray big enough. We don't pray enough. We don't pray big enough. If we knew how much power God has, we'd be asking God, do miraculous things. Show your power. You have more power. You can do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. He's saying this so that we will pray bigger, pray greater. But don't pray this way. God, if you will do this, then I'll believe in you. If you'll do this, then I'll know you care. Then I'll know you love me. Then I'll know how strong you are. That's wrong. Here's what's right. God, I think this prayer request is in your will, and I'm asking you to show your power in it. Lord, I don't deserve it, but I'm asking for that. But, Father, let me go ahead and say, whether you do it or not, I know you are. I know you have all the power. I know you can. I know you care. I know you love me. I'm going to love you. I'm going to serve you. I'm going to trust you. Whether you do this or not, that is totally different than asking for a sign. Watch. Asking God, God, I need a sign. What is the opposite of asking for a sign in your mind? Think. God, I need a sign. The opposite of asking for a sign, you say, well, it's not asking for a sign. No. The opposite of asking for a sign is trusting his promises. 
trusting his promises. So there's asking for a sign and there's trusting. Listen, God desires, God wants us to have faith and confidence in his spoken word more than hope in miracles. He doesn't want us going through life hoping in miracles and demanding miracles. He rather would have us go through life experiencing the supernatural because we are trusting the promises that he's already given us. So I want to flesh that out just for a moment. Let's try to apply this. It's going to be mainly part for we that are Christians. I think most of us, if I were to just say, hey, heads about and eyes closed, I'm not doing that right now, but would you raise your hand if you know, you know for sure you're on your way to heaven? Most of us would say that we know that we're on our way to heaven. Why? Why do you know? Guys, listen, you're going to stand before God one day. What makes you think that you're on your way to heaven? What is your confidence in? Can I propose to you that our assurance, true assurance, ultimately at the end of the day, you say, Jeff, when I got saved, I heard something. I felt something. I saw something. Listen to me. I've heard that before. I've heard that from folks here. So, Jeff, you ain't buying it. No, that very well may have happened. I'm not going to tell someone they did not hear something. They did not see something. I'm not about to tell someone they didn't feel something. What I am going to tell you, if your assurance of salvation is based on what you think you saw, what you heard, or what you felt, then your, your assurance is very flimsy. Your assurance better be based on the promises of the Word of God. That's what it has to be anchored onto. These other things, that's fine and wonderful. I'll throw this out. Sometimes we Christians go through life and we hit these seasons where it just it doesn't feel like God is close. I'm just not sensing that he's close. Here's another one. Jeff, I'm, I'm at a crossroads of life, and I don't want to blow it. I believe God has a will. Hang with me. This is some of us. God has a will. I don't want to go to the wrong college. I don't want to take the wrong degree. I don't want to pursue the wrong degree and get to the end of it. And like, Boy, I blew that and threw all that money away. Mom and Dad, I need six more years in this other thing, right? I don't want to do that. I don't want to pursue the wrong career. I don't want to get the wrong job within that career. I don't want to marry the wrong person. And we come to these crossroads, have to make a decision. Want to marry the right person. Want to get the right house. I, I, want, to, I, I want to go to the right church. I want to be involved in the proper ministry. And so we don't want to blow it. So we come to these crossroads, and this is where it's very tempting. So God, would you give me a sign? Which school? Which degree should I go after? Which career? Oh, I've got four job offers. Which one? Got four people after me wanting me to date them. That's not a problem I've ever had, but some of you may have that problem. Which one should I? Right? Which church? Which house? Which one of these ministries? This is real stuff. So, Lord, I need you to give me a sign. Guys, please listen right here. God may give you a sign, and God may give you something external uh, that you can see and feel, and you may think, I'm not about to say God can't do that. But above that, more important than that, even could I say it underneath all of that, please listen right here. Be sure in those moments that the basic fundamentals of the Christian walk are part of your life. Rather than going around constantly asking God to give you signs, then be sure that the basic fundamentals of the Christian walk are in your life. Jeff, like what? A, I, we say it over and over, but a daily time praying with God, a daily set aside, quiet, solitude, stillness, silence, just you and the Lord with God, walking with the Lord through the day. These are basic fundamentals. 
on our elders retreat, Danny brought up one that I'd never associated. don't know why I didn't. Now I definitely say that is a definite daily fundamental, and that's daily surrender. Like surrender to the Lord every day. Is that part of your life? Daily time in the Word. I'm not telling you how much of the Word to read, but I'm saying daily time in the Word where the Lord actually speaks to you. God, I'm holding out for whatever ministry you got for me, and I'm sure you'll make it really clear, but in the meantime, you are not using your spiritual gifts to serve anybody. That's a fundamental. You say, well, I don't even know what my spiritual gift is. You need to find out what your spiritual gift is and start using it instead of sitting around twiddling your thumbs waiting on some awesome ministry to write itself in the sky. Are the basic, do you give to the Lord's work? Are you faithful to a fellowship? Be sure the basic fundamentals. Jeff, why is this so important? If these are not in place, then you will never know what God really sounds like, and you'll pick a college based on how good the food is in the cafeteria, and you'll blow it. You'll pick a spouse based on how handsome or how pretty she is. You're going to pick a career based on how much money it projects to give you. You're going to pick a house based on some of the exact same things. You're going to pick a church based off of a lot of fluff. Don't do that. Be sure the basic fundamentals are in place. And then you'll know what the Lord sounds like. And you may have, Lord, I have two or three great options. And he very, may, very well may give you some prompting in your heart. And then you'll know it's from him. And not just you or some demonic force trying to impress something on your mind to get you off track. Number two. Number two out of verse 39 and 40. Let's talk just for a moment about the sign that did settle who Jesus is. Jesus says, in other words, don't go through life asking for signs, but I tell you what, you will be given one sign. Look at verse 40. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Guys, I've got to state something here, and it's, you're going to say, Jeff, that's obvious, it's redundant, we're, we're a mature audience, we don't need this. Would you look one more time at 39 and 40? No sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will, guys, can I state the obvious? Do you see how Jesus is talking about Jonah? Jesus talks about Jonah, the account, the Old Testament account of Jonah, as if it is a real, actual, historical event. You say, Jeff, duh, we know that. Y'all know that someone probably listening either online right now or sitting here this morning, they look at Jonah and other passages like it in the Old Testament as allegorical. There's a movement that's been around about 250 years, started in Germany, and it's, it probably predates that, but they really kicked it off. And it's, there's a revival of it in conservative churches in America today to look at certain sections of the Old Testament and allegorize them. Why? Because they're just so hard to believe. You know, there's no way that guy could have breathed down there for three days and three nights. So it did, it's not literal. No, it is literal. Well, how in the world did he breathe? I don't know. Well, the, the, the pressure of the, if he really was down there, some great fish, how did he survive? I don't know. All I know is Jesus, you say, Jeff, I think it's an allegory. Let me tell you, Jesus does not look at Jonah as an allegory. You may, he doesn't. I'm just going to take Jesus' word over yours and over the liberal teacher down at the liberal seminary. We're going to go with what Jesus says. That's how he approaches the account of Jonah and all other accounts in the Old Testament. And so here's his point. 
Jesus uses the literal account of Jonah to show that Jonah's three days and three nights in the belly of the fish is a type. Notice, literal, Jonah's literally in the fish three days and three nights, but Jesus uses that as a type of his own death and burial and resurrection. And by doing this, what Christ is saying is, this is my main, number one, greatest miracle of all. You say, Jeff, is this greater than that one and that? Absolutely. Greater than even him raising other people from the dead is Jesus predicting and coming through with his own resurrection. That is the greatest one. This is the one that Jesus says will ultimately prove who I am. You want a sign? I'm not going to give you a sign. In fact, wait a minute. I'll give you one sign. And it'll be his greatest and most validating miracle of all. So I've got to ask you, looking at verse 40, focus there just for a moment. What exactly is the sign? Now I'm going to circle back to what I said a while ago. When, remember when I said a while ago, I think this is important. This is my opinion. I said that I feel like they were asking for something beyond the Old Testament. And so I think this is the sign. In other words, Jesus is saying, I will give you something that goes beyond what the Old Testament had predicted. And so here's the sign. What exactly is it? Here's the sign. First of all, did the Old Testament predict that the Messiah would die and resurrect from the dead? The answer is yes. So, okay, then the resurrection must not be the sign. Listen, the resurrection in itself is not the sign that Jesus is giving here. They want something beyond what the Old Testament has given them. So I'm going to propose the specific sign is not just that he will resurrect from the dead. It's when he will resurrect from the dead. The Old Testament does not specifically say. It says that God's Holy One would not see corruption. We could kind of put two and two together and figure out when does the body start decomposing in certain environments, and that's around that time, third, fourth day, the body of Christ would not reach that point to start decomposing, but it doesn't specifically spell it out. So I'm going to propose to you the specific sign he's going to offer them is this, three days, three days. He doesn't just say, I'm going to rise from the dead. I'm going to rise from the dead on the third day. The third day. That's your sign. I'm going to go ahead and name it. Eight ball, corner pocket, off, to, off of 53 rails. Nobody can do off of 53. 53. You got lucky. What are you talking about? I called it off of 53 rails. Some of you are like, what is he talking about? Is that a game? Anyway, good for you. Others of you think how much money you can make off of 53 rails. Shame on you, right? <laughs> the sign is three days. Hey, listen to me. They remembered. Will y'all join me? We're just going to fly through the book of Matthew and just hit a few passages. I'm not going to linger long. We preach this every Easter, and it flavors our messages all year round, and we sing about it all year round. Hold your spot here. Put your marker. Go back to Matthew 20. Seven. Notice who remembers what Jesus says. Go to Matthew 27. We're looking at the sign, the single one sign that truly once and for all settled who Jesus is. You say, well, his miracles settled. Guys, the apostles performed miracles. Oh, his sermons and his teaching and his preaching. The, the apostles preached and taught powerful me messages and sermons. Empowered by the Holy Spirit. So what is it that separated Jesus it was his resurrection on the third day after he had called it. 
And they remembered. Who remembered? Look at verse 62. Watch. Matthew 27, 62. So Joseph of Arimathea asked for the body of Jesus after he died on the cross. He washes the body, wraps it in linen cloths, fills it up with spices, puts it in his own tomb, rolls a big stone in the front of it. The next day, verse 62 says, the next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees, there's our gang, they gathered before Pilate, the Roman governor. Hey, listen, listen, Pilate, we are really sorry. What are you guys doing here again? We just need one more thing. We, we forgot this one thing. And they said, sir... We remember how that imposter said, while he was still alive, we, we've just remembered what he said. He said, after three days, I will rise. Therefore, sorry to bother you, we need one more thing. Order the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people. I mean, could you imagine? What if they steal the body and they're going around telling people, he's risen from the dead. And the last fraud be, will be worse than the first. So here's what we need. We need you to make sure that that doesn't happen. It won't be on the screen. You have your Bible open there. You'll see in verse 65 and 66. Pilate says he gives them a guard of soldiers. And they go and they seal the tomb, which would mean they would put a rope in front of the stone, sealed it in wax. So if anyone moves the stone, it's going to move the rope, pulling the rope from the wax that had the signet ring of Pilate, no, no doubt, marked in it and would make it obvious that the tomb had been tampered with. You have a garden, you have a seal there. And they think they have solved everything by this. They remembered. Do y'all know who forgot what Jesus said? His own disciples. How do they forget? Go back with me. Look at chapter 16. So we're in chapter 12, right? This is the first time where Jesus is starting to announce his resurrection but it's not the only time let's fly through this Matthew 16 look at verse 21 from that time Jesus began to show his disciples so in other words if they didn't fully understand the Jonah thing the Pharisees got it but apparently his disciples didn't from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised he started teaching this Flip over a page, look at chapter 17. I always read these texts somewhere at Easter, and it doesn't hurt us to look at it here five or six months apart from Easter. Look at verse number, chapter 17, look at verse 9. Peter, James, and John are with Jesus. They're coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration. Notice, as they were coming down the mountain, they've just seen Moses and Elijah, and they saw Jesus' whole form and appearance transformed into a glorified body. It blows them away. They want to build these tabernacles and temples. This is an amazing thing. As they're coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, just the three, tell no one the vision. Don't tell anybody what you saw until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. When I'm raised from the dead, then tell everybody what you saw. But what about Elijah? Oh, you guys, you don't get it. You want to talk about Elijah. It's about me, but anyway, they want to talk about Elijah. Don't tell anybody what you saw until after I've been raised from the dead. Look at chapter 17, verse 22. This is a little bit later. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. Couldn't be more clear. They will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. They were greatly distressed. So this time they're starting to understand a little bit of what he's saying. Flip over to chapter 20. Let's look at two more real quickly. We're just flying through one book of the New Testament. Just Matthew's account only. Matthew is going to remember some of this. He's in this audience as this is happening. Matthew chapter 20, look at verse number 17. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, now they're really starting to make their movement. 
he took the 12 disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we're going up to Jerusalem. All right, Lord, we're going to the past. No, no, no. We're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death. You guys paying attention? I'm telling you what's going to happen. They're going to condemn him to death and then deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And he will be raised on the third day. Over and over. He keeps calling it. One more time. Matthew chapter 26. This is after the Last Supper. They're now making their way over to the Garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives. The Last Supper is over. Judas is gone to betray him. The, him and the eleven are moving. Matthew 26, look at verse 30. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, this is eerie to me. This is always an eerie thing. You will all fall away because of me this night. All of you guys. You're all going to bail on me tonight. Tonight's the night. You will all fall away because of me this night. Here's why. For it's written, I will strike the shepherd, that's Jesus, and the sheep of the flock... That's his disciples. They'll be scattered. But after I'm raised up, he always, every time he predicts his death, he always links it to the resurrection. Every single time. Verse 32. But after I'm raised up, I'll go before you to Galilee. I'm not going to read it all. Of course, Peter puts his foot in his mouth. Lord, Lord, Lord they may bail on you. but I, I wouldn't put it past them, Lord. I will never, Peter. You're going to deny me three times before the night's over. No, not me. Okay, let's see. And you guys know the rest of the story. Looking at these passages, a, a quote that I love. I wish I had time. I'm going to fly through it. I want you to get the impact of this. Wilbur Smith writes the following because, guys, this is the sign. What's the sign? The sign of the prophet Jonah. Three days is the key. The third day. Not Jeff Bartlett, I will tell you guys my body will be resurrected one day. When? I don't know when. We buried my Uncle Harold. We call him Pat. Buried him a month ago. If I know anyone else other than myself that is going to be resurrected, have his body resurrected, it is my Uncle Harold Bartlett. Hadn't happened, though. He's been buried for a month. Jeff, when are you going to be resurrected? I don't know, but when Jesus called his resurrection, he said, it's different than you guys. Mine will be in three days. I will not see corruption. Wilbur Smith writes the following. He says, it was this same Jesus, the Christ, who among many other remarkable things said... And repeated something. Said it and repeated something. Which, watch, proceeding from any other being would have condemned him at once as either a bloated egotist or a dangerously unbalanced person. If anybody says what he's saying, they're either crazy, arrogant, egotist, or something seriously wrong. They're having mental struggles. He continues that Jesus said he was going up to Jerusalem to die is not so remarkable, though all the details that he gave about that death weeks and months before he died are together are a prophetic phenomenon. But when he said that he himself would rise again from the dead the third day after he was crucified, he said something that only a fool would dare say if he expected longer the devotion of any of his disciples. Only a fool would do this unless he was sure he was going to rise. 
I conclude Jesus was sure he was going to rise. In other words, guys, if you're reading this, what Christ is saying is, hey, followers of mine, disciples of mine, listen, you've seen me do a lot of wonderful things. You've heard me preach and teach like no one ever has. If I don't rise again on the third day, then you just throw it all out as he was, he's a great teacher and a great healer. But I'm telling you, I'm rising again on the third day. If I don't rise on the third day, then don't believe anything else I ever said. I'm calling it before I... This is the sign that proves once and for all who Christ is. He staked his whole ministry on the sign of the prophet Jonah. Number three. Notice with me number three this morning. Verses 41 and 42. The condemning witnesses at the judgment. The condemning. What's going on here in verse 41 and 42? We have the condemning witnesses at the judgment. Look at verse 41. The men of Nineveh will rise up. Jesus, this is our Lord talking. This is the words of God. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. Look at verse 42. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. Ladies and gentlemen, we don't like to talk about it. Notice again. Do you see how Jesus talked about Jonah as a real person? If you're going to allegorize Jonah, then you have to allegorize Solomon and say, well, Solomon must have been a, a made-up person as well because he talks about them in the same tone. He uses the same tone to talk about the judgment. There is a judgment day coming. And now I'm, here's where I'm learning in my office as I study the book of Matthew. I'm starting to get a bigger, better picture of what's going to happen on the day of judgment. Two weeks ago in verse number 36, I learned this. People are going to give an account for every single careless word. Not just our lies, not just our broken, empty promises. Every careless, what we think are useful, throwaway, insignificant words. No, you're going, to give an, you're going to give an account for every word. I learned that. I read the book of Revelation. I learned this. There are going to, guys, what's it going to be like at the judgment? There's going to be these books that are open, and it has the deeds of all of mankind in the books. They're going to be opened and read. I also read Revelation. I learned there's this other book. What's this book? It's the book of life. It's a real book. My name's in it. Every person whose name is in the book of life will go into eternal life and live with the Lord forever and ever in heaven. Those who are not written in the book of life, there's no either or, there's no in between. You're either in it or you're not. Those who are not in the book of life, they will be condemned to eternal punishment in a lake of fire. Every word will be judged. Books of deeds will be opened. The book of life will be opened. But here's what's unique that I'd never thought about until I read verses 41 and 42. There's two judgments. Christians will be judged in what the Bible calls the judgment seat of Christ. I believe that happens after the, the rapture. That's my opinion. You may place it somewhere else. We will be judged at the judgment seat of Christ. But the Bible talks about this thing called the great white throne judgment. And that's those who have refused to put their trust in God and his word. And particularly in the last 2,000 years, those who have refused to trust the Lord Jesus Christ. All of those people will be judged at the great white throne judgment. Watch what I'm about to say. Here's something that I learned the last couple of weeks. Many people, notice, not all. Not all of the people at the great white throne judgment are going to have an experience like 41 and 42 tells us, but I think many, and so we'll, our note says the following if you want to start writing it. Some at the great white throne judgment will hear testimony from others who had less spiritual light than they had, 
But those that had less spiritual light, the reason their testimony is brought forth is because even with less spiritual light, they still took the less light and turned it into faith and put their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. They're going to be brought forth as a testimony of condemnation to those who had more light, more spiritual opportunity. I know this is going to happen. I know what I'm about to say is going to happen. Many people will be at the great white throne judgment and they will hear testimony of their own children who put their faith and trust in Jesus. And when the child testifies, five-year-old, eight-year-old, 14-year-old, when their child testifies that they trusted Christ, that will be added condemnation to show there was enough that was available, enough truth, you could have put your faith and trust in Christ. Your little child did. They had childlike faith. You refused. That's what's coming. I'm going to say what I'm about to say. I'm going to say it again in a few moments. Watch. The people Jesus is preaching to and, and talking to, the Pharisees and the scribes, this is key, the people he's talking to at this point in history, right? We're here. Judgment somewhere here. We're here. Christ is here with his audience. Over here's Jonah. Back here's the queen of Sheba, the queen of the south. The people that were here in Christ's day, they had more evidence to build their faith on in the promises of God, particularly in the Son of God, than anybody before them. Anybody before them. No one before them had as much spiritual light, as spiritual opportunity as they had. You say, Jeff, what, what were their advantages? I'm not talking about the average person. The Pharisees and the scribes, I'm going to give you four things. They had access to the words of God. They didn't have a printing press. People didn't have Bibles everywhere like you do. But these people that Jesus is talking to, they could about any day of the week go look and put their eyes on any book that we would call the Old Testament. Books were rare. Everything was handwritten. Very valuable. But these people had access to it. Number two, they were taught by the rabbis what to expect. What, they missed a lot of the prophecies, but they knew of a lot of the prophecies. And so they're taught in what to expect. Couple that with two more things. They heard Jesus teach and preach, and they saw his miracles. They saw the miraculous. They saw casting demons out and healing people. They know about the turning the water and the wine. They see this over and over, raising the dead. They never deny it. They're privy to all of these things. They have more spiritual opportunity than anyone before them, and yet they refused. Look at verse 41. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. Why? For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. Behold, something greater. I'm not going to be mean here. I think this is what's happening. Back in verse 6, Jesus alludes, he's, there's the temple. He's greater than the temple. Verse 42, there's Solomon. Solomon's great. Jesus is far superior to Solomon. Jonah God used him, no doubt about it. Christ is far superior to Jonah. I think, can I add one word and not harm the, te harm the text at all? Here, I'm going to add it. Jesus says, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented even at the preaching of Jonah. Did you catch the word I added? Even Jonah. He's not belittling Jonah. He's just saying how much greater he is. He's saying even Jonah was effective to these people. 
right now Brandon's probably not well happy with me because he's a huge fan of Jonah. Uh, he's been consumed by this book for most of this year. And Jonah's a great man. Jonah's been used to reach a lot more people than I ever will. Hear me. Jonah was greatly used by God. But can we agree on this? Jonah was not an example of a surrendered servant of God. He's just not. His message is accurate. His message is from God. His heart was never in it. Warren Wiersbe, I don't always draw something from his commentary. It's usually like less than a page on our text each week. But he gave a list as I've shortened it. Watch. How is Jesus greater than Jonah? Watch. He's greater in his person. Jonah's just a man. Jesus is God and man. He's greater in his obedience. Jesus always obeyed the things that the Father asked him to do. Jonah disobeyed God until God put the squeeze on him. He's greater in his power. Jesus raised himself from the dead. Jonah had to be spit out on the ground by the great fish. He's greater in his love. Literally, Jesus loved all the sinners of the world, and he died for the sins of all those who would put their faith and trust in him. Jonah wants the people he's preaching to to experience the judgment of God. Jesus is greater than Jonah. Jonah ministers to one city, a very large city, hundreds of thousands of people, no doubt affected by his ministry. Hundreds of thousands, great men. Jesus ministers to the whole world throughout all time. Jonah's primary message is judgment is coming. Jesus' primary message deals with judgment, but it's mainly about how to avoid and be saved from judgment by grace through faith in his death on the cross. Who's greater here? He's way far superior. Can I offer the following? Jesus' main point. Watch. There's a difference between Jonah and Jesus. But there's also a difference between the people of Nineveh and you Israelites. And that's the problem. Yes, there's a difference, Jesus and Jonah, but there's a difference between the Ninevites, the men of Nineveh, and the people of Israel. What's the difference? Let's write this down. The pe Ladies and gentlemen, this will happen. The people of Nineveh will be brought forth as witnesses at the judgment when the people in Christ's day are... Apparently, there's going to be some chronological order. And the Lord's saying, when we get to you, you will be brought forth. And then I'll have to bring them back around and they will give testimony. Why? Because even though the Ninevites were pagan Gentiles with less spiritual privilege, they still responded in faith to the less light that they had. Jonah's message was true. His message was accurate, but it was not complete as the message of Jesus. Jonah's message, I'll guarantee you, ladies and gentlemen, it was not that enthusiastic. Judgment's coming. What was that? Judgment's coming. 40 days. 40 days. Judgment's God's coming. I can't wait. <laughs> He's not enthusiastic. Jesus is teaching and preaching to people to bring faith to himself. Far superior. Yet... They repented even at Jonah's preaching, and the people in front of Christ rejected him. Bring forth the men of Nineveh. Tell what happened. Lord, we were living in our sin, and one of your prophets, him. And at that point, hey guys, love you, love you. He came just walking through our town announcing judgment in 40 days from you because of our sin. And then what? Well, we believed him. And then 
we repented. And we begged you for mercy. And you gave it. And here we are. We've been living with you and awaiting our glorified bodies. This is awesome. And that will be condemning to the people in Christ's day. Look at verse 42. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. A little different here. Why is she important? For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. So I'm going to be brief on her, okay? I'm not sliding her. Just It's kind of the same idea. When these people are judged, literally the men of Nineveh will come and give their testimony. It will be condemning. And then there's going to be this woman. Her testimony will also be condemning to this particular audience. I think Jesus' points here are two. Don't, don't miss it. Listen. His point about the queen of Sheba or the queen of, south, of the south is how far she came and who she came to see in here. How far she came, who she came to see in here. Listen to me. Queen of the south. This would be deep Arabia. You ought to look it up on a, on a map. In their world at that time where the fastest way to move was on a horse, and more likely you would move on a very slow pace of a camel, this was a long way, hundreds and hundreds of miles. I'm telling you, it would have been extremely difficult to make this trip. So here's this woman way down in Arabia who's going to come up to the land of Israel because she's heard that the God of Israel has blessed their king with tremendous wisdom. He answers anything, the wisdom of God. And she has these questions. She's going to bring her questions. Extremely costly, very inconvenient for her to make this trip. Listen, uninvited. This woman ain't even invited. Here she comes to town. And all of a sudden, she sees the kingdom, and she hears Solomon speak, and she asks her questions, and he answers them perfectly. And she sees what's going on over at the brand-new temple of God, one of the seven wonders of the world. This is amazing. You say, what happened when she got there? She believed. She came. She saw. She believed. She starts praising God. She gives a little bit of an offering, somewhere probably around $200 million, to the Lord's work. She came. She saw. She believed. She praised. She gave an offering. A pagan, Gentile, way out in nowhere, just hears of something, makes her way there, uninvited. Do y'all see the picture? Do you see the problem? The people in Jesus' day have the Son of God himself leaves heaven, takes a human body, comes and is standing in front of them and is inviting them to put their faith and trust in him, and they refuse. They have God talking to them. She believed even little old Solomon. No offense, Solomon. Solomon's very wise and very, very wealthy and very, very powerful, humanly speaking. Jesus is infinitely wise, infinitely wealthy, infinitely powerful, and yet they do not believe The thought hit me this week. Actually, I wrote this, I think, last night. Some people will receive greater condemnation than others because unlike the queen of Sheba, they were too lazy, too presumptuous to get up out of bed and go to a nearby church and hear the gospel. She came from a far distant land to check out a rumor she had heard about the king of God's people. And it worked to her faith. I have no one in mind. I promise you I have no one in mind. I'm not being mean. 
I could go that direction, I could go that direction, I could go any of these directions. Y'all know there's some apartments, complexes right over here. Do y'all know that there are people over here, I guarantee you they'll die and go to hell because they were too lazy to get up out of bed on a Sunday morning, come across the street, hear the gospel, and put their faith and trust in Jesus. It's just a fact. The Queen of South is going to probably be brought forth as a condemnation to them as well. I wonder how many people are going to be brought forth one day who were reared, literally reared in countries where they're taught Islam all their life, taught Buddhism, Hinduism, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormonism, atheism, literally people who all their life have a government that tells them there is no God. They're taught there's no God from the time they're a child. They never see a Bible. They never hear the gospel until later in life. Later in life, God works it out where someone shares the gospel with them one time and they put their faith and trust in Jesus. I'm here to tell you, if Jesus were talking to our crowd today, he would say those people are going to be brought up at the judgment and their testimony is going to be condemning to those of us who heard the gospel early in life and often throughout our life and yet still just reject it. Their testimony be condemning. Write this down. Jesus is teaching us that the greater spiritual light, the greater spiritual opportunity that we have, the greater the condemnation if we reject it. I don't think we realize the advantage we have here in America. It's just all around us. We're born in it. I'll tell you this. No one here can say they didn't have a chance to know. No one can say that. I'm nearly done. Do y'all remember I said earlier? The people here in, in Christ's life, they had more advantages and more evidence to build their faith than anyone before them. I emphasize this part. They had more advantages than anyone before them. But I don't know that I would say they had more advantages than people in the last 2,000 years, particularly the last 500 years. Think with me. It's our last note. What advantages do people of the last 2,000 years, what advantages do we have? You say, well, Jeff, we've, we've never saw Jesus. We've never seen his miracles. They did. Can I contend with you that if you really were to step back and see the whole picture, we here in America have a greater advantage even than they had. Two of them. Can you think of one? I'm not going to ask you. Raise your hand. You say, I think I know one of the great advantages. Let's write them down. Number one, we have the completed New Testament. It explains the Old Testament. They didn't have the New Testament. Hey, they had more than anybody before them, and they're going to give an account for that. We have the completed New Testament. And we have the unique ministry of the Holy Spirit of God that's been poured out on the day of Pentecost. And Jesus, not only coming in believers, but Jesus in the Gospel of John says, when the Holy Spirit comes, he's going to have a unique ministry, a little different. I don't know the difference. I can't really tell you. I didn't live in Old Testament times. All I know is this. When the Holy Spirit has come, one of the things he will do is convict convince the world of sin, of righteousness, and judgment. Jeff, what's your point? The completed New Testament, coupled with the unique ministry of the Holy Spirit, is something so powerful that I believe puts us in a category of even having more advantages, even than the scribes and Pharisees that were staring at Jesus face to face. You dare not enter the presence of God at the great white throne judgment, having heard this gospel 
as the Holy Spirit is teaching it to us today. So here's how I close. Can I have your attention just for a little longer? No one in here has ever seen a sign like the Pharisees asked for. Won't you show us a sign? None of us have ever seen it. None of us have ever seen any of the miracles of Jesus. None of us has ever even seen Jesus. But here's the amazing thing. Here's what blows me away when you step back and think about it. Most of the people in this room have put their eternal security. I mean, you're going to spend somewhere for eternity. Most of the people, probably not all, we're putting our faith and trust in a person that we have to admit we've never even seen. Never seen him. And if you really think about what I'm saying, some of you are going like right now, like, hey, wait a minute, wait a minute. Hold on, I never thought about that. Way. We have now. I haven't put in my whole life. What if they're, hang on. And yet we're going to go to heaven. Have you ever thought about how that works? How did that happen? I propose it happened some combination of the following. Here's how it happened. God, listen, God gave you an innate belief in him. That won't save you. You are born believing in him. People who don't believe in him have to be taught not to believe in him. You're born with an innate knowledge that there is a God. Number two, you're born with a conscience. Number three, God gave us creation and nature. And what we look at is we look at nature, we realize there is a God. I already knew it on the inside, but now I'm learning a little bit more. And he's a moral God. He's, he cares about what we do. I'm responsible to this God. Those three things, conscience, innate awareness, and nature, all combine, this is important, to show us not only is there a God, but he is so involved that when you heard that there was this book that is the word of God, it's God's message to us, something in you, if you are a true believer, said, I believe that. A lot of people think that's crazy, but literally that, that black book that Jeff's holding right there is the key to faith. I believe it. He then puts the message of the gospel, the simple gospel we sang about, in someone's mouth. It may have been in a written form that spelled it out, or it may be in a spoken form. It could be on a radio, on a television, in person. For me, it was Ed Yeoman. He puts that in some, God's Holy Spirit puts that, his message, in someone's mouth, and we hear them as believable. That sounds believable. And then he lets us actually understand it. Though it's way over our head, we understand the simplicity of the gospel that we're sinners and God must punish our sin, but he loves us so much that he sent his own son to become a human being so he could punish him for our sins. And if we'll trust in his death on the cross, then we get to go to heaven. I don't understand why he would do it, but I believe he did it. And then the Holy Spirit actually helps us to believe that so much that we agree with God and put our faith and trust in Christ. And that's how it happens. We got great advantages. So here's my last two thoughts. Christians, seriously, you say, Jeff, what's the takeaway for us? We kind of knew all this. You ought to thank God. God, thank you for where you've put me to where I'm exposed to a completed New Testament. You've put that message in believers who are spirit-taught, but ultimately your Holy Spirit uses even those weak vessels and you just drive that message in me, and then you give me the very faith to believe. Lord, you get all the credit for my salvation. You ought to thank God for the completed New Testament and the unique ministry of the Holy Spirit. That's your main takeaway. 
And if you are not yet a Christian, here's your main takeaway. What are you waiting on? What are you waiting on? What's holding you back? All God requires is childlike faith. That's all he requires. Listen. Some people might not like what I'm about to say. It doesn't take a lot of faith. It's not about how big and how much faith. The key to faith is what your faith is in and who your faith is in. It's not the amount of faith, the size of faith. He'll grow your faith. So I've got to ask you, is the Word of God enough or are you still going through life God's got to prove himself to you. If God has to prove himself to you with some sign, some external thing, then you're rejecting his word. And God is truthful. He cannot lie. So I beg you, stop living an affront to God. Stop questioning his veracity and just hear the true word of God and let it sink into your soul and create faith and put your faith and trust in the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, because God the Father says, that's my Son, and He is the way to heaven. Jesus says it of Himself. John the Baptist says, He is the Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus' works proved who He says He is. The Old Testament gives us 300 prophecies, not 200, not 150, not 250, 300 prophecies, prophecies that prove Jesus is the very Son of God who is the only way to heaven. What are you waiting on? Why don't you just right now confess your sins to the Lord and call upon the Lord Jesus Christ and say, I receive your salvation because you cannot lie. I'm going to stop doubting you. I'm going to stop looking for something external, and I'm going to start trusting your spiritual word. Would you bow your heads just for a moment? If you need to do that, I invite you to do that even right now, even right now. Why wait? Ma'am, sir, young person, please listen to me. Don't end up at the great white throne judgment condemned by somebody else's testimony that hasn't heard what you've heard or seen what you've seen or been exposed to what you've been exposed to. They have a lot less than you. And yet even hearing and seeing less, they took what little they had of a knowledge of the gospel and it led them to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And today they're just resting in Jesus. They're not trying to earn their way to heaven. Please don't end up condemned by their testimony because you've rejected the simple gospel. Why don't you just right now have the conversation with God. Just talk to him however you need to. I'll, I'll give you a few things, but you just talk to him how you need to. You need to acknowledge that you're a sinner. Agree with God about that and agree with God that Jesus is the Son of God and his death was enough to pay for all your sins and that when God says, when he gave his Son, that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life, then you're going to take God up on that promise. Why don't you just deal with the Lord right there, wherever you're at right now.
And then we Christians, right now, we're going to take a moment and just thank God for the advantages that we have. Christian, I have to ask you too. Jesus resurrected from the dead. Hey, Christian, is his resurrection a reality of your life? Could you, on your own, by experience, in the last week, could you, if put to a lie detector, say, oh, I know that Jesus is alive. I've not seen him physically, but his person. I know him. I want to know him more, but I do know him. We've talked this last week. His resurrection is a reality in my life. Is that true? If not, then I have to ask you one last thing, Christian. Are the fundamentals of the Christian walk, not to get saved, but once we are saved, are those fundamentals part of your life, or is there one of those? Is prayer lacking? We don't need a lot of signs when we talk to the Lord in prayer. When we read His Word, we don't need a lot of signs. Are the fundamentals in your life, are you serving Him? Are you holding out for the big ministry? Don't. Serve Him where you're at with what you have. Father, as I close, Lord, you know my apprehension with this message. Just really feeling unprepared. Lord, I pray that you would make up for that. Feel a whole lot more like Jonah than even Solomon. And certainly not like your son. But Lord, I've learned this. Thank you. The Holy Spirit can even take something like me and us as unprepared and imperfect as we are. And you even use us to be a mouthpiece. So Lord... Let grace for you now as we exit in just a moment. Go out and be the mouthpiece to this county of Anderson. Let's be evangelistic, Lord. Let that be part of the fundamentals of our life. God, let us start our day with surrender. If we haven't done it yet, let us do it right now. And God, thank you. If no one else has done it this morning, Lord, I want to thank you. for Let me be born in the Bartlett family there in western North Carolina where I went to church and just had it instilled in me that the Bible is your word. Lord, thank you for my uncle having a Bible camp. Thank you for Ed Yeoman coming and telling me that I had sinned. I was going to hell unless I trusted Jesus. And God, thank you for giving me faith. Lord, thank you for every other Christian here that has some similar type testimony. But Lord, if anyone does not, God, I pray that you'll convict them so much. Let your Holy Spirit convict them, make them miserable. May he convicts, convince them of their sin, of their need for righteousness, of Christ's righteousness, and of the urgency of judgment so much that God, if they haven't settled it yet, they will come and seek help to get that settled. Lord, we want to see them glorify you through eternity. We present all of this in the name of Jesus for your glory. Amen. Amen. Hey, thank you for coming. Have a great Sunday. Have a wonderful afternoon.